0: So I would like to say a very warm welcome to you all. Uh, I know that some of you, because we recognize you, have done this kind of retreat before. It's been some years now since John and I have offered a study retreat here at IMS, and we're very, very glad to be back doing this. So this evening, what we'd really like to do, because I I know many of you have traveled today and you're weary. John has also really just flown in last night, so he's weary too. Um, (laughs) So what we'd like to do this evening is really uh, not keep you overly long. But at the same time, we'd like to set up the framework for the retreat. So you're kind of in the know of how how this is going to work. I'm sure many of you who've been to IMS before, walked in the hall, saw a flip chart, and thought, something's a little different here. And it is indeed. So um, just we want to cover the practicalities first. Do you want to say at this point?
1: Uh, no, I'll
0: wait. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so the way that we will kind of frame the day is that uh, the mornings will be quite dedicated to a, a format most of you will be familiar with, of sitting and walking, silent, sustained practice. And I really encourage you, I would want to really encourage you to make very full use of that time. Because there is something about cultivating the inner quietude, the inner calm, that is so valuable in terms of engaging with the teaching that we will offer in the afternoon and in the afternoons we we will also have some formal practice but we will be offering a, a pretty much a 2 hour teaching session we are always 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 over ambitious in the amount of material we'd like to cover and so uh, we'll hope to to cover it all um so in that afternoon period, clearly, I'm sure all of you know, our, our focus during these days will be really exploring in as much depth as possible the Brahma Brahmaviharas. So as much as there is a silent practice element in this retreat of really listening inwardly, calming, stilling, there is also a significant piece of outer listening. And I think we we even start this retreat by even kind of a little bit investigating how to listen. You know, there's a way in which we can listen in which we're kind of already trying to fit everything together and make ni- nice neat packages and you know or filtering what we hear through what we already know. And the practice, I think, so much supports a quality of listening in which there's a kind of the same stillness is brought to the listening. Not agitation, not busyness, but a capacity to attend wholeheartedly, to let seeds be planted, to let them be digested, and to actually match what we hear with an inner investigation and an inner examination of is this true in our own experience? Does this make sense for us? So, And then in the evenings, we will have times, uh, a dedicated time in the evening for any reflections, questions that have arisen during the day, You should know that the teaching sessions in the afternoon will be recorded and then uh, uploaded onto Dharma Seed. Um, So, some people I know, some of you in this kind of environment, like to take a few notes, and that's just fine. You know, you can get notepads and pens from the office, but you, you needn't feel that that's a necessity. Some people find it very useful, and you certainly don't need to try and write down everything that you hear because you will always be several steps behind what's actually being offered so some moderation in that is useful but don't feel that it's kind of prohibited or you know discouraged in in any way so do you want to it's on the, on the long piece,
1: Jim. Okay. okay, well, first of all, big, big welcome to everybody. I always feel it's such a privilege to be able to offer these study retreats because I feel that they really are something which is integrating um, elements of you know, the Buddha's teaching in a very practical and integrated fashion, which is, I think, what he intended. Um, because his intention really was never to offer just one strategy towards this awakening process. The strategies strategies were manifold, and actually this component of what we call study, which unfortunately is a big Western word um, and sounds very off-putting to a lot of people, is not what he really intended. It was a deep immersion in the teaching, a deep immersion in the Dharma. And so this is what we're attempting to do with this in this one particular topic, the Brahma-Viharas, which I'll say a little bit about in terms of its importance. Because it is extremely important what we're talking about um, because, again, this is one of the strategies that the Buddha offers towards awakening. Yeah, it wasn't just a, a one-way process. Um, so hopefully we'll get you to hear a little bit more about this and to contemplate it. And just while I'm just dealing with some practicalities here, um, I just want to add something to what Christine is saying about the the writing notes. Writing notes, I would never discourage people to do that. But sometimes, rather than trying to write down exactly what we're saying, which you can just get off the recording, it's probably better to see what it stimulates. If anything is stimulated as a thought or a reaction to what is being said that you might want to explore further and to help to deepen your practice, to actually put it down as an aid memoir, something which will actually encourage you to look a little bit deeper into the teaching itself rather than just simply write down what we're saying. So that's what I would encourage you to do, to try and use it in that way, you know, if you're using note-taking as a means of actually deepening the practice for yourself. Well, one of the other practical issues, of course, which many of you who have been on these retreats before, on any retreat, will have heard, of course, is the precepts, which is so, so fundamental to any <coughs> retreat situation, not just a retreat situation. Um, I just kind of, always feel it's a reminder, I'm reminding you what is important, because the precepts are our ethical stance that we take in the world as lay people. I mean, I think we get off very, very lightly. Um, as lay people when you think of the 225 rules that monastics have to obey. So, you know, we get down to five. Um, you can extend it to ten, but we're only going to talk about the five this evening. And rather than see these just as prescriptions, and I often see them just laid out as prescriptions, and I think, oh, what a travesty you know, don't do this, don't do that, and don't do the other. You know, it's, it's really not what they're intended for. They're meant to be ways of inquiring into your moral and ethical life, and particularly in a situation like this, um, and helping through situations like this where we're applying those precepts directly because often they can be at the forefront of our minds, take them into ordinary life and to see how they're there within ordinary life. So it's not just about being in a retreat situation to reflect on the precepts, but to reflect on them in your ordinary situations, in your family life, in your home life, your work situations, because this is where it's really, really important, and again, I would actually say that the precepts themselves and our, the ethical inquiry that we engage in is foundational. It's that which we build the practice on, um, and the practice itself feeds back into the inquiry into our ethics. So as you know we have this list of the five precepts starting with you know um, often what i see just translated as you know not killing it's far more interesting than that you know it's far far more interesting because it's actually saying you know it's a, it's a rule of training notice that for a start it's a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings yeah it doesn't say just kill don't just uh, sort of abstain from killing is saying to refrain from aspects of harming in living life. That includes you, by the way, not harming you, any living being. And so what we're doing here is we're really inquiring through this precept into activities of harm because often unwittingly we engage in harmful activities towards ourselves and towards others without really bringing any degree of mindfulness to what's going on. Um, it's something that we're just engaged in. So this is really to kind of wake you up to the situations of harm that we engage in in our ordinary lives, yeah, not just, as I say, on retreat situations. So all of these precepts are these rules of training, ways of beginning to inquire, to open up, almost like can-openers to our ordinary life, to open up and to see what we engage in in our ordinary life and to refrain from taking what is not offered. Again, we could phrase it, as so often happens in popular books on Buddhism, as don't steal. Well, of course it implies that, but it also means taking anything that's not offered, even down to phrases of other people without acknowledging where they come from. Um, I often used to remind my students a lot about you know, plagiarism, they think it's so easy to lift somebody else's words because it's so much easier than trying to think them through for yourself. Um, but this is a form of taking it down to, you know, in a work situation, using a telephone where actually it's not offered freely that you can do that, to taking stationery, uh, All these little things that we engage in which actually we tend to think, well, actually, do they really matter? Well, of course they matter because if we continue to engage in them in them, they shape our lives in some way. You know, um, an act of transgression um, done once is much easier to do the second time in any form. So again, this is to bring us into a situation of reflection um, in regard to our ethical ways of being in the world. The third precept, well, often again, this is, well, slightly, I wouldn't say mistranslated, but it doesn't include the full range of what is included in this. It's usually about sexual misconduct, to refrain from sexual misconduct. The actual Pali itself, when you translate it, has a word which says kamesu, and the word kamesu means also sensual misconduct. Whilst we might not engage in sexual misconduct, we might engage in a tremendous amount of sensual misconduct, um, abuse of the senses. You know, being plugged into I don't know iPods all the time, uh, overindulging in movies, um, eating too much. That's a really good one. You know, I often feel that meditation retreats sometimes are, you know, eating retreats, interrupted by a few sessions of meditation. <laughs> You know, so we need to look at that one quite closely, um, particularly, as I say, on on a retreat situation. So we can easily engage in sensual misconduct. And again, this is a form of distraction, a form of diversion, a form of not really being here. It's actually literally an attempt to fill ourselves up, as we can do, um, in these kind of vicarious activities which leave us feeling full for a moment, but then leave us in that sense of feeling empty yet again and just into the next round of trying to fill ourselves up. So sensual misconduct and sexual misconduct being that one. Then, of course, the fourth precept, which is the one to refrain from false speech. It doesn't say, note, please, don't just abstain from lying. It's actually saying, you I know, undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Often this is extended into not just false speech, but harsh speech, divisive speech, and gossip, you know, chatter. It's almost like, well, is there anything left to say? Because actually, when we think about it, and when we really reflect and that's the beauty of coming on silent retreat it actually really makes us come face to face with our speech acts, you know, because there can always still be that urge to want to engage in. In fact, even when we're not literally physically uttering anything, if you notice we're always talking, you know? we're always saying something. You know, we talk all the time. You know, we even talk in our sleep. Um, so we never cease talking. Uh, The quality. What's going on in the quality? Are we, in a way, in those speech acts which might not be physically verbalized, but in those speech acts are we engaging in divisive speech, harsh speech, telling ourselves stories which can be far from being the truth about situations, and are we just engaging in idle chatter, That's, which is another translation of this. Notice what happens when we're engaging idle chatter, really nothing a lot of the time. Um, it's like an engine idling. An engine idling is not really doing any work. It's just chuntering around to itself. So again, rather than take this as a prescription, use it as a way of beginning to look at our immersion in speech, even in a situation of silence such as this. And then finally, we come to the one about abstaining from taking substances which cloud the nature of the mind, which actually befuddle the mind, to use a lovely old word. We can take drink and drugs and all these sort of things which will actually divert us from what we're engaging in. And I think this is the Buddha's primary reason for having this precept, It's not so much a kind of prudery around drink and substances and things like that. It's more that it's actually going in the opposite direction to what we're trying to do. If the Buddha's path is one about adding, or gaining, I should say, clarity of mind, a mind which has a degree of clarity which simply isn't present most of the time, and we're trying to sharpen that and hone that and really live that life of mindfulness, then actually to engage in these activities of taking substances which cloud the mind actually takes us away from the very direction, the very trajectory of what, for example, the meditation practices are about. Not only that, um, if I listed them on the flip chart here, I'm um, I a mean, great one you'll find for writing on flip charts in these study retreats. Um, but if I wrote them in the order, you know, kind of descending order all the way down to the bottom one about you know, taking substances, then another good reason for not engaging in the final one, in the fifth precept, or the um, transgression of the fifth precept, is because you're likely to commit all of the above. <laughs> You know, so this is really what the precept's about. But please, please, don't just hear this as another list of don'ts uh, that we engage in. This is much more engage with them. Engage with the precepts and use them as ways of inquiring into our ethical ways of being in this life. Okay, that's the precepts. I just want to say a few words about, you know, the path that we're engaging in here of study. What we're calling study, um, as I said in my kind of opening remarks, this can sound very, very Western. You know, study theory, and what are we doing? We're studying the theory of Buddhist practice and Buddhist psychology, and all the rest of it. Well, actually, this is not really what we're engaging in. It's just, it's, it's just a, it's a useful epithet for, you know, for this kind of retreat. This path of the integration of really. Immersing oneself in the teaching is really, as I said at the beginning, what the Buddha was about. His path was not just a path of meditation. I really, really do add that. I'm not speaking for other forms of Buddhism, I'm really speaking only about the early forms of Buddhism. The the Buddhism that we find in the Nikayas, which isn't Buddhism at all. It is a particular path that we find that he outlines. That this path was so important to him, you see again and again in the dialogues that the Buddha engages in with people, it's to get them into inquire into the teaching. Now, these are all very stylized because they're very ancient, you know, very ancient texts, and two and a half thousand years old. They're not written in the style that we, you know, we would expect from anything nowadays. But what they do do is show a path of inquiry. And this is what we're engaging in, in these few days that we're together here. We're inquiring into the Brahma Viharas and their place in the Buddha's teaching and what they can actually mean. Um, and the Buddha's path was really to understand the teaching. Yeah. You know, to understand the teaching, to practice the teaching, and to realize it. Yeah. You know, to connect it with your experience. In a way, there's a word I like to use. It's never a word that's used in the actual texts themselves, but it's a word which I think is about the incorporation of the teaching into your lives. It's a lovely word, incorporation. It means to do with the body as well, to integrate it into your bodily felt experience of life. You know, so it doesn't remain an idea. You know, We're talking about the Brahma Viharas here. Uh, I might say that friendliness, which is the way I translate metta, boundless friendliness, isn't just a nice idea. Compassion or outgoing kindliness is not just a nice idea. This is something that we really have to deeply, deeply understand why it is so important in our lives, practice it and realize it, to see its effects in our ordinary life. So I can't speak more forcibly, really, and than I'm doing at the moment, about the importance of what we're calling a study element, an educational element. And to begin to realize the depth and the subtlety of the sorts of things that the Buddha was teaching. Now, the Buddha was teaching something which is entirely practical. He was not teaching a theoretical, philosophical position. Everything that he spoke about in the Nikayas, the the suttas, everything you find within that has a practical bearing. And you'll hear me say much, much more about this over the next few days. But I just really want to emphasize that this is part of the strategy of the Buddha's teaching, to really steep oneself in the Dharma, to understand the Dharma, and to practice it and realize it. Um, It was not a non-educational process. He didn't expect people to just hear it and to take it on this sense of blind belief. What he expected people to do was really engage in it, we engage with these um, teachings, to really examine them, to really integrate them into your lives. I think it's probably that that's probably enough for this evening because we will do a lot more of it as we go through
0: There's one more um, practical piece that I haven't really touched on, but again, I just really want to also just echo what John has said. I think, you know, in our culture, study has been kind of compartmentalized into a purely cognitive affair, conceptual affair, memorizing, learning, being able to regurgitate. It's interesting in our culture, we've, we've often been learned and learned ourselves to, to think a lot. I think there's something about different about reflection, actual contemplation. What it means to reflect, to contemplate something in a way so that it really does penetrate into the bones almost. The one practical piece we haven't yet touched upon is, again, part of this framework is around the kind of silence which will be the overall container of this retreat. And it's not as if we will be, you know, we have periods of silence and we have periods of teaching and listening and asking questions and we go back to periods of silence. The silence that we encourage here is is more than just a verbal silence, although that's part of it. It is learning to to somehow calm down that whole piece of of needing to be endlessly interacting with everything. Um, but there is the verbal silence, and it's very important to also reflect on why we do that, you know why we. Value this so highly. Some people have quite negative histories and associations with silence. It's a kind of withdrawal of affection or punishment, a way of being kind of cast aside. But really, the kind of silence we talk about here is much more kind of ennobling silence. And I think it's one of the greatest blessings of a retreat. You know, it, it's sometimes you know said not only in Buddhist psychology but in Western psychology that the fear of public speaking is is the greatest of all fears. Death is better than than public speaking. Um, but this also comes into the whole realm of communication. How often c- communication is, is kind of sometimes. Um, colored by this endless need to present ourselves as being someone, and the fears around that, the fears of criticism, the fears of... And the great blessing of silence in a retreat is we can all just put that one down. We don't have to be anybody for anybody else. We don't have to perform well. We don't have to present well. We don't have to earn approval. We don't have to endlessly cogitate about whether we've kind of made a bad impression upon somebody or made a fool of ourselves. We can just settle that, allow that whole piece to settle so I really encourage you to be quite conscientious about the silence. I mean, certainly if you need to communicate with Marilyn, that's fine. But knowing what is needed. There's a big piece of this silence that I think is particularly relevant for our culture today, which is about unplugging. Unplugging, disconnecting, please, you know, if you don't trust yourself to turn your cell phone completely off and leave it off. Give it to Marilyn for safekeeping. She'll love it dearly for you while it's gone and return it to you at the end of the retreat. But there's something away, you know, of course there's tremendous values, practical values for cell phones. I take one with me when I drive long distances. Um, There's also a way in which you know solitude is in danger of becoming... um, Uh, an endangered species in our culture. You know, the fear of of somehow if I'm not plugged in, I'm going to be forgotten. You know, I might miss something important. I might, you know, somehow, I don't know what would happen. Our worlds might crumble. Now, some of you may have people at home who depend upon you. You know, might be elderly parents or someone who's ill in your family. If that's so, Please make arrangements quite intentionally, consciously with Marilyn about doing whatever is needed. If you're not in that situation, I think there's always a good question that we ask of ourselves when we start a retreat is, what do we let go of to allow ourselves to be here most wholeheartedly and most fully? And, you know, for, for many, it's the habit of busyness, the habit of doing, the habit of agitation. And, some, you know, we can see how easily that gets expressed through the endless need to be up to date with everyone and everything. It's so easy to forget, you know, how, you know, it's not that long ago where, you know, we could live without this. And guess what? The world went on. And our lives went on, and we still loved people, and people still loved us, and we can still do that. We can learn to step out in this, into this quality, I think, of inner solitude, inner listening, inner stillness, so conducive to uh, any, any path of awakening. So, should We make this up as we go along, by the way, about (laughs) how things unfold here. You'll get used to it, you know. It's kind (laughs) of (laughs) like...
1: Let me say a little bit about the Viharas in general that we'll be looking at over these few days. First of all, there is no direct translation of this term, Vihara. Um, it's one thing to add. Most of the English translations, like sublime abidings and you know, four immeasurables and all of these things, have some kind of little hook into Um, what was meant by the Buddha about these particular four states that he's talking about, but they don't really do it justice, so I always stick with Brahmavihara. Um, And when we hear this, unfortunately, um, even by the time of Buddhaghosa in the fifth century, um, even he had lost the metaphor which the Buddha was drawing upon. And one has to remember that, of course, the Buddha is living in a very particular society at a very particular time. And I'll say much more about this tomorrow and place it in that. But in this particular time that he was living in, um, to say to somebody, for example, that you are going to engage in something that would bring you to dwell with Brahma, which is actually literally what it means. Vihara means, as in monastic dwelling, a dwelling place, and Brahma was the chief of the Hindu gods, or actually the Vedic gods um, at the time of the Buddha. To say to somebody that you were going to dwell with Brahma actually meant that you were going to be liberated if you practice these things. What is so unique, I think, about the Buddha in his own time, and I think probably historically as well, is the Buddha makes, for example, let's just take metta. He takes the path of friendliness and makes it into a path of liberation. And in fact, one of the things, I again, I want to explore with you in a little bit more depth, is we don't actually have different practices within, I think, the strategies that the Buddha offers. What we have is different shades, different shades of something he calls sati which is usually translated as mindfulness. And in the Metta Sutta, for example, Metta, friendliness, what you all know as loving kindness, which actually is not a very good translation. Um, The Buddha doesn't ask us to love everybody. He asks us to be friendly with everybody, including ourselves. But in that Sutta, what he refers to Um, is that metta is a sati. He says there is no greater mindfulness here. There is no better way of living in this world. So we're not talking about mindfulness on one hand, and metta and the other brahmaviharas on the other hand, and they're kind of being, well, which one do I do? Um, Which particular practice? Do I engage in satipatthana for ways of founding mindfulness, or do I engage in metta? These are not separate practices. They are actually the path of sati. They are the path path of mindfulness. And at its most basic level, which I think we'll begin to explore tomorrow, just even some of the practices. At its most basic level, we can see that sati as a mindfulness and as a metta is integrated in the practice the moment we begin to turn towards our experience. Now, I'll say that again because it's actually quite an important statement. The moment that we begin to turn towards our experience rather than get caught up with it, hold on to it, grasp after it, get attached to it, or reject it and push it away, the moment we just turn towards it and are with it, that actually is an act of friendliness. It's a basic act of befriending ourselves and everything gets built on from that. So we're not talking about this practice of mindfulness being one thing and the practice of metta being another thing. The practices of metta, mindfulness, actually metta is a sati and sati is a metta. They are not two separate things. I would want to make this much, much clearer tomorrow and as we go through these days, but this is the beginning point this is what we're engaging in. We're beginning to look at the ways of turning a kindly eye, a friendly, a friendly demeanor towards ourselves and our experiences yeah, by beginning to really literally befriend them. You know, make, make friends with yourself. You know, this is where we start. And everything that arises in the aharas arises out of this foundation. Quite clearly in the Metta Sutta, which I'll we'll read to you tomorrow, quite, quite clearly in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha is offering is a path of friendliness, as a path, as I've said, to liberation. It can't be made any clearer. He says, one who practices in this way will not come to lie in a womb again. Yeah. Now, no matter what one thinks about the whole notion of, of you know, sort of rebirth and what's going on in that, whether it's a metaphor or whether this is an actuality, it's very clear the Buddha is saying one who practices in this way will be liberated. Yeah? I find that quite an astonishing thing. Yeah. I, even after all these years of you know, kind of being involved in this practice and engaged in teaching, and that I still find it quite a remarkable thing that actually this is the one thing that we all so sorely need in our lives. We've only got to look around about what's going in the world, and we see that the world sorely needs it. Yeah. but if you like, the charity starts at home. Yeah. The charity starts with ourselves by extending it towards ourselves, and this is going to be where, in a sense, we start off tomorrow. The final outcome of this, the final flowering, if you like, of the whole process that the Buddha sets in motion um, with this teaching on the Brahmaviharas is, of course, the flower of equanimity, the flower of upekka, you know, the flower of being able to suffer the buffets of, and the vicissitudes of life the constant buffeting that we get this to and fro, the good things that happen to us be by being followed almost immediately sometimes by unpleasant things happening to us, to not be swayed, yeah. to live a balanced life of equipoise, almost like a ballet dancer moving through life, not being swayed by what is going on. I've offered you some images, but you know, this is a path from friendliness to equanimity. It's not just what's involved, but this is absolutely fundamental. uh, It's—I think it's what I would call the heart of Buddhist practice, literally the heart. Okay. Okay. I think we're going to sit for a few minutes. Do they
0: need to stand up
1: and stretch? Yeah. Would you like to stand up for a minute or so and just stretch yourself?
0: Okay, so just settling into a posture where you feel as much uprightness in your back and your neck as you're able to, finding that balance in your body of a sense of alertness, wakefulness, but. Equally a sense of ease, of softness, mindful of any areas of holding, tension, allowing your shoulders to drop, your jaw to relax, your hands to soften. Sensing what it is to be mindful of your body sitting. <coughs> so sensing what it is to bring an attitude of friendliness, of kindness, of curiosity into that contemplation of your body sitting in this moment. In an intentional, intentional way, bringing your attention, your mind into your body, aware of your body breathing—a very unforced process. Just tracking that simple reality, that simple actuality of breathing with mindfulness, with care. Breathing in, calming the body, breathing out, calming the body, breathing in, calming the mind, breathing out, calming the mind. To wait to the moments when your attention is drawn away from your breath, knowing that thinking is happening, or a sensation in the body has arisen, bringing the same calm mindfulness to those moments, to simply know and to be able to return. So tomorrow morning, being the um, first day of the first full day of the retreat, and to allow you, or so hopefully to support you in making the adjustment to being here, we don't have an early morning sitting tomorrow morning. So the wake up bell will be at six. But do encourage you as much as you can this evening and tomorrow morning. To really, uh, you know, bring that intentionality into being here of really establishing mindfulness within the body, care within the body as we move through the building, um, doing all that is just needed to go to bed, to get up. So it's really recognizing how much of a sort of a contemplative environment, a retreat, is really not just a kind of geographically arriving or a geographical situation, how much it is truly an attitudinal commitment and an intentional commitment inwardly. Um, Many of you are probably not used to going to bed at 9.30 and may remind you of being eight years old. but. I um, encourage you to rest well this evening so that we start as wakefully as we can tomorrow.